is Bloomberg Surveillance. I don't want to be complacent. There are things the world should be worrying about, but it's just not as bad a world as some people are saying. For what most families care about, it's not GDP growth or the size of the economy as a whole. It's how they're doing. Real capital investment is way below average. Why? Because business people are very uncertain about the future. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Michael McKee and Tom Keen worldwide for Global Wall Street. In this hour, must listen. Seth Masters joins us from Bernstein. We're thrilled to drag him in here. From his travels for Alliance Bernstein, Seth Masters will join us uh, in a moment. Bloomberg Surveillance brought you on this Monday, Central Bank Week, Bank of Japan, the Federal Reserve, and then the Bank of England. There's nothing going on this week. Uh, we're brought to you by Cone Resnick, accounting tax advisory to keep your business on top of issues in the evolving renewable energy market. It takes dedicated industry experts like Cone Resnick. Find out more at Cone Resnick. Dot com. Michael, this is going to be wonderful. Seth Masters is with Bernstein. You know them, Michael, is the keepers of the black books. Years ago, before PDFs, you would you you didn't even matter what was in the black book. You just walked around with a black, like forty page or sixty page book, just so you could look cool reading Bernstein research. He synthesizes all of that for Bernstein out of Princeton and Oxford and with a terrific, eclectic international experience. Seth Master joins us this morning. Are there still black books at Bernstein? Yes, there are. But as you said, most of them are actually distributed electronically now. Do you remember that? You'd call up somebody, quick, get me a black book. I have to look like I know what I'm talking yeah, about. I was going to say, if they're electronic, <coughs> then you're not going to look cool. You're not going to look cool anymore. <laughs> Tom won't get any girls, you know. You, what that's, you do? Yeah, you could. You get a black book from Bernstein. You were, you were a girl magnet. Tell me about single-digit world. This is something that's a huge focus. It seems to me that all of our audiences are unprepared after 09 in the bull market for a single-digit world. Is it going to be a low single-digit world? I think it is for some time. And um, awkwardly, in many parts of the world, if you're investing in sovereign bonds, it's a negative single-digit. So that that's a very tip, that's a trying environment especially because volatility is apt to be elevated for some time as well and the combination of relatively low returns with relatively high volatility is going to be uncomfortable there is a enormous uh, we have seen been through a couple of waves of, of enormous volatility and you're suggesting um, that's not over with what's driving that if i want to look at what's going to you know to predict what's coming what do i want to look at well i think that the fundamentals in the long run are always what matters. And in the short run, it tends to be sentiment. And the problem that we have right now is that the fundamentals um, are actually okay in much of the world. Actually, in the United States, we have moderate growth. and much of the rest of the world, it's anemic, but still it's growing. Um, the, I think the problem is that people are so uncertain about what lies ahead over the horizon. And over the horizon matters more than ever. Because remember, markets discount the future. When interest rates are very, very low – you're effectively discounting further out into the future at a time when it's harder to see what's out there. What issues are driving sentiment right now? What's the major concern for investors that they're watching? Well, the one problem is there isn't one major concern. People are really worried about what's happening in energy markets. I think they've overestimated how much that feeds directly through to the rest of the economy, but they believe it and it becomes self-fulfilling. They're very worried about what central banks are doing, exactly as Tom said. There's a lot of 
lack of clarity about exactly how these policies will play mm. out with this big divergence between the U.S., which is clearly trying to tighten, and the rest of the world, which is trying to stimulate, and nobody knows if either of those will work. But then how do you synthesize single-digit organic revenue growth at the top line with somehow grossing it up to decent margins down the income statement to me, the only answer is this dreaded, ugly word, synergy, where it's a la Starwood today. It's almost a merger frenzy is the only way to create alpha. I think it's very company specific. And I think that's going to be one of the big themes in the years ahead, which is, the, you know, the, the last five or six years of this amazing stock market boom, um, it was enough to just basically buy an index or an ETF and enjoy the John ride. Bogle, through John Bogle. But I think the next five to seven years are going to be really about being very selective and choosing the companies. You well, know, I know you don't bonds. do companies, but is Jeff Immel on the right track with a reindustrialization of Generous Electric? I think it's really about the company-by-company company choice of what is your competitive advantage, and also do you have the right um, balance sheet strategy and the right people to make it happen. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's, not, there's not one ingredient that's going to be correct for everybody. Um, there are also some sectors that are going to be structurally much more challenged than others. Obviously, energy right now mm-hmm. is really in disarray. That's going to take some time to resolve. Um, you know, you, you want to look for companies that are well-positioned in industries that have a bit of a tailwind. And, uh, and we think that there are lots of opportunities today because the massive flows out of active and into passive – have, um, I think, created more irrational pricing at the stock level than we've seen in some time. Well, I wanted to ask you that. Is, uh, how far off are valuations from reality in this world? If you look in aggregate, I think the market is reasonably priced. It's a little bit above historic averages, but then again, inflation is low and the discount rate is low. So those two things more or less offset. The problem, though, is risk is high, and you're not actually being paid enough, we think, to take the additional risk that you have today in stocks. So in our um, portfolios, which we manage with a dynamic tilt, we actually are slightly underweighted in stocks. And here's the reasoning. If you think about what a person with a balanced portfolio, say about 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, is really trying to achieve, you can think of it as a risk target because a 60-40 portfolio like that historically has had a risk that averages something like an 8 to 11% volatility per year. But in today's environment, you're actually taking more risk than that range if you sit at your normal 60-40 allocation. So we adjust clients' allocations to keep them in that risk range that they originally signed up for. And that means we'd be slightly underweight stocks from that risk perspective. Um, But within that, we'd be taking a fair amount of concentration exposure in the stocks we think are most attractive because we do think there are these misvaluations okay, so inside This is really important. You're going to take a concentration uh, exposure. You and I remember Fidelity 50 just as one idea of a fund. It was unheard of to be that non-diversified. But if you say you're going to migrate 60-40 down to a lesser stock, do you just assume more bonds? How do you get there? Well, you have a number of choices. Right now, we would be <clears> slightly <throat> overweight bonds. And also, it depends on which, you know, we, we would be overweight in certain parts of the world. Like, for example, we're slightly overweight Japanese stocks because we think they're cheaper and more diversifying than other flavors of stocks. But we, we would be slightly tilted into bonds. And, uh, and we do think it's a time when it's worth having diversifying assets as well. Is cash an asset? Um, yeah, you can think of cash as effectively a very, very short duration asset. The problem is right now um, it's not very attractive. After all, there is inflation, which is running at somewhere between one5 and 2%. And uh, so you're guaranteed to lose purchasing power when you hold cash. Is cash an asset in negative rate countries? It's a really great question, Tom. That's my existential question for the month. 
the, the problem is how do you actually invest in it apart from just being like Scrooge McDuck and having a swimming pool full of gold coins or, 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 be or, McKean. or McKean. I'd be all in favor of that, yeah. <laughs> So what do you do I mean, with cash uh, in in the meantime? I mean, you don't get paid for that either. Right. So we actually don't think it's a great idea to have a huge amount of money sitting on the sidelines. We think what you should do is have a long-term plan that acknowledges that returns will be lower, but they still will be positive. We don't think that this is a terrible environment. It's just anemic growth with many companies being challenged. So the issue is to have a long-term plan that – takes that low interest rate and, and, uh, and rate of return on stocks into account, but still gets you to the long-term objective you're looking for, and then try right. to implement it really smart by not just right. being indiscriminate about buying index. I would suggest the herd right now is U.S. large multinationals, large caps. Can you go the other way and find value in emerging markets of some flavor? Great question. Yeah, I think there's actually – a very good argument now for trying to find some of the areas that were most irrationally beat up during the period of um, So you're going to go for true value, but Brazilian commodities stocks <laughs> versus a bank in the Philippines? Well, there's a real problem in some sectors because people aren't always wrong when they think that things are bad. So mm. in Brazil, there really are some very deep structural problems, um, and many of the Brazilian commodity companies um, actually won't necessarily recover quickly. But to, uh, to our way of looking at it, there are lots of specific opportunities in, um, in, in emerging markets, in small cap. Um, we would, therefore, want to be fully exposed there. Um, right. We'd be a little bit underweight in large cap U.S., as you suggest, but we still think there are some interesting stories there, too. Well, this is wonderful. Seth Masters with us with Bernstein, Alliance Bernstein. We're thrilled to bring him to you this morning. This is a great hour. Paul Sankey and uh, uh, Seth Masters. Back You're learning back a lot. Very, very cool. Coming up, we're going to talk to Seth Masters about the flat-out failure of ERISA and defined contribution plans. He's a true expert uh, on this. I think it's going to be a timely conversation as John Tucker, among others, uh, looks at his 201K. Yeah. 3.30.16 statement. Also, we've got a real surprise with Seth Masters on your children and, well, getting ready for next autumn, back to school. What should you do in a certain grievous part of your children's uh, education? So we'll do that with Seth Masters of Bernstein. Futures negative 5, Dow futures negative 24, yen weaker fractionally, dollars stronger a little bit. I would go to oil two days in a row south. 37.49 in West Texas. Brent under 40, 39.25 a barrel. Let's check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. The political fireworks might not be limited to the presidential nominating campaigns. President Barack Obama will likely announce his Supreme Court pick as early as this week. The Republican Party is planning an intense campaign to target vulnerable Democrats and try to stop whomever President Obama picks. Amtrak says a train bound for Chicago from Los Angeles derailed in Kansas just west of Dodge City overnight, sending about 20 people to a hospital. Forecasters say any additional rain will make flooding worse in Louisiana and Mississippi. Flooding that began last week has damaged more than 5,000 homes, and at least four people have died in Louisiana the National Guard has rescued about 3,300 people in the state. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom. Michael, thanks so much. Again, Seth Masters with us. This is Must Listen, Global Wall Street, 
for those of you looking at the what to do of simply putting away more money. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. The news update brought to you by Witham Smith & Brown CPAs, audit tax and advisory services to help your business be in a position of strength. Experience the Witham way by visiting witham.com, W-I-T-H-U-M.com. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. U.S. stock index futures moving lower this morning. Let's go to the first word breaking news desk for today's morning call. Here's Bill Maloney. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Karen. We are seeing small losses in the equity futures as crude futures drop 2.5%. Dow futures currently lower by 26 points. SBs drop 5 and NASDAQ futures fall by 11. The U.S. 10 yield at 1.97%. And European markets are rising, led by 1.5% gains in Germany, while while Egyptian stocks jump 6%. After currency devaluation, in deal news, fresh market to be acquired by Apollo for twenty-eight fifty a share, and Starwood Hotels gets offered for seventy-six dollars a share in cash. Finally, some of your Wall Street upgrades and downgrades: Tesla raised outperform at Baird, price target three hundred. Monsanto cut to neutral versus buy at Citigroup, price target ninety-five. At Goldman Sachs, Amphenol and WR Grace cut to neutral. J and J raised to neutral, and Echolab cut to sell. HCA Holdings raised over at J.P. Morgan. Constellation Brands raised to buy at SunTrust. And finally, Farmerica cut to neutral versus buy over at UBS. Live from the first breaking news desk, I'm Bill Maloney. Karen? Thanks, Bill. To hear live breaking news over your Bloomberg, type Squawk Go on your terminal. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K Go. That's a Bloomberg business flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. This morning, Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Looking for investment views? Experienced experts are just a click away. Go to Invesco.com slash U.S. to subscribe to the Invesco blog and follow at Invesco U.S. on Twitter. We're thrilled to bring you Seth Masters of Bernstein uh, with his exceptional expertise on defined contribution. Eisenhower, X number of other presidents. We get to ERISA 74 and when I see Alicia Monell up at Boston College tell me 70, 80% of Americans aren't correctly funded, can I state that ERISA was a failure? Well, I think the question is what would have happened without it. Fair, fair. It would have been worse. Okay, it would have been worse, but come on. 70, 80% of us, whatever the goodwill is, are actually not even close to where we need to be. What do we do? Right. Well, I think we, first of all, don't have a lot of perfect choices. What we have to do is be realistic. And one aspect of that is that the defined benefit system that was one of the major focuses of ERISA Mm -hmm. um, really is in the process of winding down. That's just going to happen organically over time. So most people will not have a defined benefit pension going forward. Our children are very, very unlikely to benefit at all from that kind of system. And we have to make sure that that wind down happens in an orderly fashion, which is tricky because returns are low. The second thing is defined contribution plans will, in fact, be the future. And exactly how that works um, will depend on how well organized they become. They're, they've, been, they've been subject to some problems. They're being tweaked, and I think they can improve. Well, when you say subject to some problems, I mean, one of the biggest problems is people don't, well, people don't trust markets and people don't trust themselves to be involved in markets. That's actually not true inside defined contribution plans. So that's what's so interesting. If you look at, peop- at most individuals, 
they really do save money in their DC plan if they are automatically enrolled, and especially that, if they auto-escalate. If, if, if they're not, they're afraid of it, aren't they? Well, that's exactly. However, once people are in a defined contribution plan, if they're especially enrolled automatically and their amount of contribution grows a little bit every year as they are employed, if they do have that, they tend to stay in that plan and they actually don't fiddle very much with their allocation. So it's well, the one place where people will have a long horizon. That's the, the, the follow-on question is, do people get the allocations right in that because they don't fiddle with it because they may not feel like they know enough about it? And generally they don't. So the key challenge is having three things be automated, the way you enroll, the way you gradually increase your contribution over time, and finally the default option that you mm. get into. And increasingly more and more companies have moved to a default option, which is effectively oh. a carefully designed strategy to start out relatively aggressive when you're just starting mm. out your work and then move to a more conservative allocation which probably is appropriate once you start spending money. I want to rip up the script here uh, with your immense abilities and skills working at Princeton and Oxford and having an international childhood. You got languages at a young age. I want you to speak to our global audience about how you get kids to engage in languages. You speak English. I, I believe it's good English, Mike. Mandarin. What else do you speak? French? French, yes, and, and some German. Look, I think I was very fortunate because I did grow up um, in, in France for part of my childhood and, um, and just naturally glommed onto language. I think it makes it a lot easier if you're in a foreign country. Um, and look, I think it's something we all wrestle with because we live in a world with lots of distractions. It's what, hard for kids. To what know. do you think of, what is it, Mike, 82% of the Upper West Side enrolls their kids in Mandarin by age four? Is Mandarin a good place to start? I, I actually think it is because speaking Mandarin is not as hard as you think. It's very tricky to learn the tones, but there isn't a lot of grammar in Mandarin. It's really like English, a very idiomatic language, and if you get the rhythm and the thought process, it's a fascinating Mike, puzzle to unlock. Mike, do your kids unlock. speak Mandarin at home? No, but they haven't been old. They're not old enough to have been automatically enrolled in the programs. One thing I read is that if you don't continue to speak it, though, you lose it rapidly, and that's one of the problems with the Upper West Side enrolling their kids is they go through eighth grade learning Mandarin, and then psh, they can't remember it by the time they get to college. Well, you certainly don't keep languages unless you use them some. I wish I could use all my languages more. Um, I think in Mandarin, the thing that is toughest to keep is actually writing um, because that mm -hmm. that is very That's complicated in Chinese. memorization, basically. Isn't yeah, it? but I think, uh, look, I think it's true. You have to find ways to, to stay current. So what is your track for 7th, 8th grade and through high school for our listeners? What, what's your advice on engaging kids, the ugly American like me and Mike, in languages? I think the challenge is really to find a way to have children start learning a language early in life and then stick with it, ideally, that really means they have to love it, and not every kid does. But The bottom line is they have to love it. They really have to love it, and I think a lot of that yeah. is down to the teachers. A teacher who can really inspire is, is a wonderful thing. Okay. Seth Masters, thank you so much. He is with Bernstein on your single-digit world on the challenges of our defined contribution retirement plan, and a little bit there. Mike, help me here. Rosetta Stone, three, two, one. <laughs> Ue la bibliothèque. Can we go to commercial now? <laughs> <laughs> there it is, my extended, my extended uh, French. Uh, I believe that was French. That I was the sound of radio is turning off. All yeah, over radio is turning yeah. off coast to coast. Uh, oil down 94 cents, 37.57 after a huge week last week. Brent crude was above 40. Now it's 39.29, down a full dollar, 11 cents. Gold fractionally lowered, down $4, 12.55. 
the ounce. It is an exceptionally busy economic week. Ellen Zetner at Morgan Stanley dropping a bombshell in her analysis of Janet Yellen's Fed. Next, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. Coming up, the With All Due Respect highlight brought to you by Land Rover. If it's in your nature to cast off the everyday and seek adventure, the Discovery Sport was built to help your search. Visit LandRoverTriState.com for special offers during the only adventure sales event, Land Rover Above and Beyond. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It's 830 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. Our economic indicators are brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk to a broker-dealer, RIA, that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. Actually, our economic indicators would be brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network if there were any indicators today. But it's one of those quiet days where there's nothing on But then it gets busy calendar. before Wednesday. Do not touch that dial. Tomorrow morning, uh, what uh, Jim Vogel at FTN says is the most <clears throat> important indicator of what's going on in the economy until we get to later in March. Uh, retail sales. Yeah. Uh, the, the forecast is for a uh, one-tenth drop in the headline. Nobody's going to pay attention to that because it's gas <clears throat> prices. But the retail sales control group up 0.2%. If that happens, he says we could go over 2%. On the 10-year note yield. The CPI, the day of the Fed meeting, do you suggest on the Tuesday-Wednesday meeting they know that data when they walk in the door Tuesday morning at the Eccles building? Well, they'll know it at 8.30. They won't know it in advance. But They, they won't know. They won't, the governors they, and presidents won't know no. it in advance. Um, but 8.30, 8.30 in the morning, that mm. they, will, they will know it, and so they'll know it before they make a decision. Okay. Uh, Alan Zentner. Uh, with Morgan Stanley, last year shook uh, big house economics to its foundation by delaying a rate rise. She then retracted on that, came back a little bit. But without call, without question, it was the big house call of the year. She redoes it this morning. The report is out from Morgan Stanley. It is a substantial report. We're going to protect the copyright. Call up Ellen to get it. In the shallow end, in Ms. Zentner, uh, basically Morgan Stanley is all alone among the big house when you compare your one rate, rate increase call to the blue chip consensus. I mean, you're awful alone this morning, aren't you? Yeah, but I think I've uh, uh, proven in the past that I don't mind hanging out there by myself uh, if we have a very strong conviction around our call. And I will note that if you look at blue chip uh, consensus, their forecasts uh, for growth, inflation, Fed rate hikes, that's all been coming down over the past several months, and we think that they will eventually come around to our view that the Fed hikes once this year in December, sort of in an eerily, eerie replay of last year where the Fed wants to do more and continues to communicate they'd like to do more, but ultimately are only able to deliver one more rate hike this year. Why do they not go more than once? Well, I tell you, Mike, they're going to, they're really encouraged by what they're seeing in the domestic economy, as are we. I mean, there's a lot of domestic strength out there. It 
coming from consumer muscle and pretty steady uh, contributions to growth from the housing market. Um, but it's those external headwinds. Net trade is going to continue to be a big drag this year. Uh, we've had another leg down in, in drilling counts, which means energy continues to way energy investment ways on the economy and we think the fed's forecast own forecasts are too lofty and their expectation that they want to hike rates as of right now four more times this year that that's going to change this week um it is just is going to follow those forecasts lower um also underpinning that is janet yellen has said that if inflation is moving in the wrong direction it would defer rate hikes. And if we look at the path of core PCE prices this year, they have peaked for the year. And I think this is the most important thing to underscore, and it's something that buried deep in the footnotes of Lael Brainerd's speech last week was also that acknowledgement that core PCE prices that rose to 1.7% in January, that's the peak for the year, and they move lower from here. And so it's going to be awfully difficult to convince markets that you should raise rates uh, when inflation is moving in the wrong direction. But if they don't come out with a, a Zentner forecast and they continue to say they're data dependent and the data, as you even concede, uh, match up with their forecasts, don't they lose credibility? Well, so this is how they get around the credibility issue. That was an issue last year where they kept telling markets, we're going to raise rates this year. It's going to happen in June. Okay, it's going to happen this summer. Okay, it's going to happen in the fall. Okay, it's going to happen before the end of the year. Uh, and what they've done is they've, they've um, uh, called together the, the outliers, the people that kept – uh, the policymakers that kept saying, oh, I think four rate hikes are appropriate this year or three are appropriate this year. Uh, and, and you notice that many of them have stopped uh, specifically mentioning the number of rate hikes they envision this year uh, because that that has led to a lot of confusion for markets and led to some of that credibility issue. The promise that they've made is we will do more if and when we can do more. And based on their forecasts, they're going to show us that they would like to do more. But what we try to uh, anticipate as economists is not what we think they should do or what they would like to do, but what ultimately we think they will be able to do. Well, uh, if that is the case, then what's the uh, – you obviously must be saying there's no inflation danger out there. No, there's not. I mean, the, the latest employment data showed that uh, wage growth – uh, has been on a very slow bleed upward, and there's no indication that it's not going to continue along that path. Uh, we do have tight labor markets in certain areas of the economy, but they're in the very low-wage paying sectors where when you get tight labor markets there with wage pressures, it's just the wage bill just is not enough to move the needle in, a, in the aggregate in a bigger way. So they're not yeah. going to be pressured by the labor markets. Stan Fisher uh, just uh, uh, last, uh, a few weeks ago reminded us, or last week reminded us, that the Phillips curve is horizontal. So it's not the, the tighter, uh, low unemployment right, rate right. is not putting up more pressure on wages. Well, and if you look at core inflation this year, it's going to be moving in the wrong direction. So there's really no right. compelling reason for them to do more. Let's come back and dig into the American economy with Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley again to remind four. She moves from three to two to one rate rise uh, this year with some stunning work uh, within her larger research piece for Morgan Stanley. Futures negative five, Dow futures negative 30. The yield 1.9. Six percent. 
now to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Five states holding Republican primaries tomorrow have enough delegates up for grabs to equal more than a quarter of the 1,237 necessary for nomination. That's enough to have the potential to give frontrunner Donald Trump almost an insurmountable lead. But his rivals are fighting. Ohio Governor John Kasich is pushing hard in his home state. It is the same for Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who needs a home state win to keep going. We have a leading contender for president telling people in his audience, go ahead and punch someone in the face, I'll pay your legal bills. That's not an excusable attitude, because let me tell you, that is wrong if our kids did it. That is disastrous if a president does it. Two journalists face up to eight years in prison if convicted in the Vatican's controversial trial over leaks of confidential documents. The journalists are accused of putting pressure on Vatican Monsignor to obtain the document, which revealed waste, mismanagement, and greed in the church hierarchy. The Monsignor and two other people affiliated with the Papal Reform Commission are also on trial. Media rights groups have denounced the prosecution of the journalists. Turkey's state-run news agency says the military has carried out airstrikes against Kurdish rebels in northern Iraq. It comes hours after yesterday's deadly car bombing in Ankara that killed at least 37 people. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike Tom. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Ray Katina Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update with Rob Bushman. Good morning, Mike and Tom. A half dozen local teams are dancing as the NC2A unveiled their annual tournament field of 68 on Sunday. Big East tourney winner Seton Hall will have their hands full with Gonzaga making their 18th consecutive trip to the Big Dance. That's a 6 versus 11 matchup. Fairleigh Dickinson, Iona, Stony Brook, Buffalo, and Syracuse round out the New York and New Jersey field. Brooklyn, they play host to first-round matchups this weekend. The Knicks' road trip continues out west where they beat the Lakers 90-87. to Carmelo Anthony, 26 points. He reflects on the final matchup versus Lakers star Kobe Bryant. Very emotional situation just as, as you know, from the standpoint of competing, you know, with one of the greats, um, a friend, a brother, one last time. You know, the way that this game, you know, played itself out. Bryant is, of course, retiring at the end of the season. Bucks took down the Nets 109-100. It's not often the Rangers play back-to-back and lose both at home. After an overtime loss on Saturday, New York fell 5-3 at the Garden to the Penguins. Rangers' Dan Girardi felt that attrition didn't play a role. Our first period, we had 19 shots. You know, and, you know, if anything, that's going to be the, the weakest period you know, coming out from a back-to-back game, and it was our, our strongest tonight. So, yeah, I don't think that was a factor. You know, I just don't. We had some good, good minutes there, good plays, and just couldn't get it done tonight. The Rangers, however, are still in a three-way tie in the East with the Lightning and Panthers. In spring training news, guys, Yankees shut out by the Phillies while the Mets blanked the Miami Marlins. And that is your NBC Bloomberg Sports Update. Mike, Tom? Rob, thanks so much. Ellen Zentner with us, and we will continue with her as she migrates uh, her forecast to a low inflation and a Fed that will do little, not nothing, but do little. Her colleague in crime, Adam Parker, brings down his equity growth view. He eliminates his positive tactical stance. We add to cash, U.S. Treasuries, and JGBs. Adam Parker minces no words about it. Zentner and Parker adjust. More with Ellen Zentner. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. This sports report was brought to you by Ray Katina Auto Group. Let Ray Katina show you the way to affordable luxury driving. Visit any one of their 16 beautiful showrooms in New York or New Jersey. Call 1-800-N-E-W-A-U-T-O or go to RayKatina.com for special offers. 
global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by National Realty. 30% returns on cash and rented real estate. Find them at NRIA.net. U.S. stock index futures are lower this morning after a rally sent the S&P 500 to its highest close this year. As investors await further assurances that central banks will continue to support growth. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures down 5 points. Dow E-mini futures down 28. And NASDAQ E-mini futures down about 11. The DAX in Germany is up 1.5%. Ten-year Treasury up 8.30 seconds. The yield 1.95%. Yield on the two-year 0.94%. NYMEX crude oil down 2.7% or $1.03 to 37.47 a barrel. COMEX gold is down two-tenths percent or $2.40 to 12.57 an ounce. The euro $1.1121. The yen 113.59. Starwood Hotels and Resorts, which is being bought by Marriott International, receiving a separate unsolicited takeover proposal from a group of companies led by Anbang Insurance Group. Starwood is up more than 8%. Apollo Global Management agreed to buy grocer the Fresh Market for about $1.4 billion in cash. Fresh Market is up almost 24%. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. Again, a little weight to futures at negative five. It is 848 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Francis Wilkinson, an editor for Bloomberg View. Ted Cruz plotted the most promising path to the Republican nomination until Donald Trump came along. In fact, Trump's initial popularity only validated Cruz's strategy of making himself a vessel for enraged voters. As Trump's staying power grew, however, and his hold on racially resentful white voters tightened, Cruz concluded that he had to confront Trump, attacking his personal finances and saying a vote for Trump was a vote for Obamacare. In the GOP debate Thursday night, Cruz opted for a new tack. He used the word solution nine times, suggesting Trump diagnoses problems, but that his solutions don't work. The debate only reinforced how thoroughly Trump has beaten Cruz at his own game. Cruz once went to extremes to cast himself as a radical who, in the words of one conservative commentator, wants to burn Washington to the ground. Having been bested by a superior act, Cruz is now forced to remake himself as a man with solutions for sale. I'm Francis Wilkinson, an editor for Bloomberg View. For more Bloomberg opinion and commentary, please go to BloombergView.com. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Michael? We're talking with Ellen Zetner, the chief U.S. economist for Morgan Stanley, who has, uh, it's not an outlier call because other people agree with the same thing, but at least uh, she is on the low end of Fed activity for the coming year or two. Just one move this year, two moves in 2017, which is... uh, much less than uh, the consensus forecast for what the Fed's going to do. I want to start by asking you to put that in context, though. Are you suggesting the Fed is not going to move because the economy is going to be bad or because inflation's so low they don't have to and they might as well get the extra stimulus? Well, I think, of course, Mike, economists have many, many hands. Um, and so I could say on the one hand, other hand, and a few others. So it's always a little bit of everything. But they're not pressured on the inflation front at all, either on the wage front, so labor markets just aren't tight enough, uh, and, and certainly not on the inflation front, uh, particularly when we look at our 
forecast for core inflation where the the lagged cumulative effects of the trade the rising trade weighted dollar will continue to depress inflation for some time so they're really not pressured on the inflation front this year but they are emboldened by what they're seeing in the domestic economy uh, we're facing a lot of external headwinds that have resulted in net trade dragging on growth energy investment dragging on growth but if you take those out of the picture and just look at final private domestic demand in the economy just what we're moving and shaking here in the u.s uh, and it looks pretty good and so they're going to continue to communicate that they'd like to do more and they'll maintain that tightening bias but ultimately decisions are made meeting by meeting and coming up to each meeting we think that they're going to be looking at inflation dynamics that are going to lead them to push uh, on hikes. And a lot of that will be determined by, and this is going to be a key phrase I think that we'll hear all year, diverging global central bank policies. Other global central banks are still easing. We're not as near uh, to the end of the global central bank easing cycle as the Fed had thought we were when they raised rates in December. And that's going to continue to make it difficult for the del- them to deliver more hikes because as our FX strategists have, have also released a separate note this morning, they believe there's more upside in the dollar to come. Because of divergence. Well, now you asked Because the, the, the dollar is low, the dollar, do, do, a trade weighted dollar is lower than it was before the Fed raised rates. Well, certainly. So we've had a nice pullback in the trade weighted dollar. And of course, if that is sustained, then that would further add to the Fed's argument to do more this year, and we would probably end up being wrong on the one rate hike assumption. Um, But our FX strategist, and Tom can tell you, if you listen to an FX strategist, you could practically fall asleep on all the nuances they give around what drives currencies. But one of the drivers... (laughs) You're getting your nasty crap from Forex guys. (laughs) One of the drivers is diverging global central bank policies. And at the time of the December rate hike, the Fed was looking at the world through a different lens. They thought that we were nearer to the end of global central bank easing cycle than we are. They were blindsided by Japan going negative, ECB going negative, and it's now apparent that we're not as close to the end of the global central bank easing cycle, and that that policy divergence is just one of many reasons that will put upward pressure on the trade-weighted dollar, we think. If you're just joining us, Ellen Zentner with Morgan Stanley. Tomorrow, it's a fair and balanced Bloomberg surveillance. Hans Redeker will join us. He'll tear apart Ellen Zetner. That was quite something, Ellen. Going <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell Hans that I said people will fall asleep when you listen to <laughs> Thank you. I will not. I will not do that. But, but seriously, this comes down to a basic economics, which is a common ground of everyone we speak to. There's a short term, a long term, and the British have the conceit of the medium term. Which term is Chair Yellen in? Well, I think right now, much of their – so when they make decisions meeting by meeting, it's financial conditions that determine it. What do financial conditions look like going into those meetings? In terms of the the medium term, the framework, the policy framework, is that Taylor rule that we all love that tells you how much of an unemployment gap do you have, what kind of inflation pressures do you have, and what does your output gap look like. And she believes – that the real equilibrium rate in the short run is currently negative uh, or about flat and will rise only gradually over time. And so they look to align policy with that gradual rise. So that dictates that they know, they're pretty certain, the rise in rates is going to be very gradual. That's the framework. 
but the decisions will be made meeting by meeting, and so they'll look at financial conditions going into each meeting um, and how certain they are about their their outlook, that they will meet their outlook. That will dictate what they're willing to do with rates today. I have to ask you about uh, a very short note in your most recent uh, note to clients uh, about recession remaining your bare case. How much of a percentage do you put on recession? Because what caught my eye is just this phrase, uh, it's deeper and longer to reflect increasing risk this scenario plays out. Yeah, so it's a good question, Mike. In the U.S. economy, basically, recession probabilities keep fluctuating, we believe, between 20 and 30 percent, depending on how much angst there is in the markets. The reason why uh, recession probabilities aren't higher for the U.S., even though we're in this very low-growth backdrop, is that you really need to show more damage on the domestic side of the economy. You know, the industrial side of the economy, we've re- we've released a lot of analysis around this, is in recession. It ticks off all the boxes that the MBER looks for when dating recessions. Mm-hmm. Industrial production has fallen from peak. It's fallen by nearly 2%. It's fallen over more than a six-month period. But that's 10% of your economy. The other 90% is still growing at around the 2% growth rate. And you've got to see more damage done to the labor market, to consumer confidence, right. uh, to, to spending uh, than we've seen in order to get those recession probabilities up much higher. But it has to remain the base case, uh, sorry, the bear case, because we're growing at such a slow rate. This is a mature phase of the cycle. I won't say we don't know how long this business cycle will last. We think it'll be one of the longest on record. Uh, but of course, when you're growing this slowly, any sort of bobble right. can push the economy into negative growth, and so it has to remain your bear case. Ellen, thank you so much. Congratulations on uh, your terrific 2015 and an important research note today from Morgan Stanley. Adam Parker migrates his equity call. Ellen Zentner migrates the economic call titled In the Shallow End. Mike, um, it's important anecdotal. Yahoo down 35% from the peak of late 2014. And then there's securities analysis. You go to Twitter. Thank you, Casey. For the photograph, it's South by Southwest of the Tumblr party. And Casey, after careful research, notices it's a cash bar this year. This is the change at Yahoo. There's a cash bar at their Tumblr party at South by Southwest. Important news you can use, security analysis. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no free cash flow. <laughs> no, no free cash flow. No free Mar- liquor flow. Versus on the warpath, I think we're having a cash bar. South by Southwest, it is changing. It is not nearly. It is, it is different. Collegially, it is different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. On economics, like Ellen Zetner, on finance and investment, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. Another hour coming up.